welcome everybody. This is Peter Ravella and Tyler Buckingham. And this is a special edition of the American Shoreline podcast because today we have a fantastic guest. I think our best guest ever so far, Dr. <laughs> Paul Komar from Oregon State University, Professor Emeritus right, of Oceanography is the title they give you. That's correct. <laughs> when you finally retire, yes. Yeah, I was talking to Tyler about that in advance. I said, you know, this guy's a professor. Merritt has been there for 42 years. At I arrived there in 1970. I had a uh, postdoc in Europe just before that in England and Scotland. So, wow. And so when you get the title of emeritus, does that generally feel pretty good? Or are you happy to get it? <laughs> no. He said, what is that? I said, it's sort of like out to pasture. Then, well, not quite to pasture, but <clears throat> I had the biggest office in the department, and I soon lost that. It, sort of in stages that I went to a office that was half as big, Mm. And then they moved me again to half a, as big as that one. That doesn't sound and it good. doesn't g- take very many moves to get down to a closet size. <laughs> <laughs> you still have some square footage at Oregon State, I trust? No, not um, all my books and everything, uh, reprints and so on, are <clears throat> in a storage unit in 72 boxes of things, most of them unlabeled. Wow. <laughs> I'm not very well organized, and uh, <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> a treasure trove. A treasure well, trove. Uh, well, I do want to, for this, we're at the ASBPA conference, Paul, and we were glad to hear, you were a keynote speaker yesterday at the conference. Uh, at the awards luncheon. At, at the awards luncheon, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a great presentation, and uh, I thank you very much for coming on the show because I, I think what I'm fascinated by is just the subject matter of your work over the years is pretty remarkable. Well, that was sort of the theme of my talk, yes, that, uh, I, you know, I pondered for a long time. Uh, I have insomnia in my old age, so I had lots of time to think about it as to what could I say about my career. And I, you know, I came to recognize that oh, it was kind of neat. You know, I did, I did all these absolutely weird things that had nothing to do with coasts, hmm. uh, for uh-huh. example. And that's what I focused on, just trying to illustrate to uh, the audience that, you know, ha- have some fun with your career. Take, take control of it. And uh, right. that's what I... Be, li- be a little adventurous. Well, you know, I think that that's one of the... the real opportunities at ASBPA, this conference, and also kind of in our founding philosophy of the American Shoreline Podcast Network is that we we tend to get really hyper-focused in one little area. And your mm-hmm. career is a statement of how uh, you, you your mind can, can explore different areas and one area can enrich the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, your background in mathematics and your passion in geology combined, and they, they allowed you to study Shores. I mean, those are seemingly unrelated pl- things, but they, they've allowed you to thrive in this field. Uh, another factor, largely self-taught, that mm-hmm. I'm an avid reader of the literature and in, always appreciated what other people were doing. I mean, so many researchers really focus uh, on their own research, and right. uh, when they write a book, they, 
all the references are to their articles and so mm -hmm. on. And when I did my Veach Processes book, you, you won't see that in me. Because I like, like everything I was reading and had uh, opportunity on my postdoc. I had actually completed the research. So it gave me a year to do <laughs> nothing but read. I had yeah. a good library at one where I was. And, uh, and that led uh, the foundations of, of the book I published, had published four years after I got my, well, it came out six years, but I clean, completed it four years after I completed my PhD, which is just absolutely insane to do. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just... Well, bo the boldness of youth, right? Yeah. yeah. You're going to write the, well, write the, the textbook. Insanity, bo boldness, whatever, but it, it's been, what, what, been well received, so... I have heard that, and it... Uh, what is it? It's tell us the title of this book. I know most, of the, a lot of the listeners are going to know it, but I don't. And 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 I understand it's five thousand dollars on Amazon. <laughs> Four thousand five hundred. Four thousand five. Uh, that's but that's I, great. I understand that from day to day the prices. Is that increasing. not? Is that true? Yes. Wow. And it's called it's sediment it, processes. It, no, it's beach processes and sedimentation. Okay. 1978? 1976 was the first, first edition. edition. And then uh, about 20 years later, 1998. Okay. And in retirement, I'm thinking if I, if I live long enough, I'll try to do a third edition. Because uh, even that second edition doesn't have much on climate change. You know, yeah. all of that is... So I'm actually writing right now chapter two. Really? And... Uh, wow. Uh, thoroughly enjoying it. Let's you know? explore that. I, yeah. I, I'm, well, I was going to ask you if you were going to update it, and if you were going to, what would be the update? And now we know, chapter two on climate change. What, where do you begin on a subject like that? Uh, what, what are you finding? What, what are you trying to say? Tell us about that. Well, I've always needed to know something about climate change because all, so much of my research for the last 20 years has been oriented towards the effects of climate change. Uh, originally, El Nino's, uh, right. in 1982-83, El Nino <clears throat> devastated the Oregon coast. So my hmm. first input into climate change, hmm. uh, or climate-controlled issues was El Nino-La Nina mm -hmm. cycles, and then later on, the, once I retired, curiously enough, I had the biggest grant of my whole life uh, financially because suddenly I, I was in vogue, you know. <laughs> Most of my career at Oregon State, my support was Sea Grant, and it was just enough to allow me to do my own research. I didn't, wasn't having to write grants all the time, which right. is the yeah. real the bugaboo of science that you, you just know you, you're writing all these proposals and you know you're going to miss half of them that you're yeah. not going to get funded so it's completely I, I could escape all of that I was pretty confident steady support steady from support Grant. not very much enough and to have a great. one or two students and that's all I wanted that's I, great I want the, the the so in the in the beach processes book and and in the climate change uh, chapter uh, Tell us about the, the interface, the implications, the connections between climate change. I think what, what's in the press is people think, well, that's a sea level rise issue. What, what is it, what are you saying? What, what's the, what does it do in, well, in the, the shoreline? What is climate, how does climate change affect the shoreline? 
the, the weird thing I'm doing in terms of just simply writing that chapter, all the other chapters are based on the literature of coastal erosion studies and so on and hmm. waves and all of that that I'm used to doing and won't change that much from the previous editions. Um, but in this instance, uh, you know, I don't really know the basic literature. I'm, I'm getting into it a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. I'm doing the, I think, the new approach for the 21st century, it's almost entirely based on the internet. Hmm. Mm -hmm. just right. <coughs> no, more, do no, more, the, no more card catalogs. Do the Ice Ages uh, <laughs> yeah. on Wikipedia. I mean, it's very good material. The graphics are there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll provide some, uh, uh, I'll draw from some textbooks and so on. Right just uh, to support further to give some references and probably some representative articles that are particularly should be read. But I don't know that literature and there's no way I could conceivably right. get into it. What fascinates me is how long we've known about greenhouse warming. Right, I, 1800s, early yeah, 1900s. Eight, late 1800s, yeah. you know, two investigators right. uh, uh, that you know, we've known it since that time, and they even, it, it's been accepted. The one was Swedish and got, got the Nobel Prize, uh, not oh, just really? for that. It was always back then it was cumulative for all of your research, right. not just one product. Hmm. But, uh, you know, it's, it, and he even knew the consequences. He, he didn't know how much right. uh, the, green, uh, the greenhouse gases are increasing with time. Right. But, uh, but you know, just estimates, he knew that it was important to, that it would cause greenhouse warming. As I understand it, and, and I, think I think the New York Times did a really excellent history on the global warming issue a few months back. It was mm -hmm. a multi-part series about the science and talked about these original studies. He understood it to be tied to coal cons uh, combustion he knew that he predicted. I think he even went so far as to look at rates of. And when was this? This was in the late 1800s. 1800s yeah, wow. he, he said, if you like burn that. through the 20th century, we're going yeah. to burn all this stuff, and this is yeah. what it's going to do. Well, I mean, I think at that time, you, the, you know, industrialization had had advanced to a degree mm -hmm. where, if you looked ahead and you tried to envision the future, you could see that we were kind of staring down the barrel of, yeah. of burning a lot I ha I of I had the interesting, you know, I got very interested in global warming. Uh, when I was uh, a student at uh, Oregon State, uh, at uh, University of Michigan, getting mm -hmm. my master's in geology, one of the professors well, I'm sorry, I'm getting off subject. No, 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 go, no, go ahead. no, no I, I'm changing it. I'm getting myself confused. <laughs> uh, when I uh, became a student at uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography, mm. one of the faculty members there was the son of that originator back really? in the 1880s. Oh, wow. I didn't know that until recently. Wow. <laughs> I figured that out. And <clears throat> even more significant on my committee was Ken Keeling, <laughs> the famous Keeling curve, oh, uh, yeah. measuring the carbon dioxide increase. And when I was there, that his curve was seven years long. 
And so, but it was clear, you know, it was heading up and you just knew it. And now, of course, you know, it's so the basis of, it, it provides the data they didn't have back in the 1880s of uh, uh, the increases in greenhouse gases. Right, and CO2 concentration and temperature, right? The relationship the, between the relationship those two, the, between the, the, the that two. curve. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the hockey stick that everybody talks about? The no, hockey stick, or no, that's that, a difference. That's, that's different. Yeah, yeah okay. that, that's going going back to look at the what historic. temperature increases were before we actually were measuring temperatures, mm. uh, looking at uh, proxy evidence. Michael so, Michael Mann. So Paul, uh, you know, it's it's really cool talking to a guy who has all of this knowledge and experience. Uh, in the science world, you know, when we, climate change is now becoming part of the parlance of modern, uh, the, the modern discussion of, of our current environment, how we're going to manage our, of course, our coastlines, our, our the American shoreline is, is ev virtually everyone we speak with mentions climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a mainstream term. But you also have, uh, in your experience, this broad spectrum. I mean, you worked on, you know, like when proto-Earth, when the moon was... No, no, I didn't. Uh, I attended a seminar <laughs> well, where they were but, arguing but I mean, about that. In, in your... But it was illustrating my education at Scripps right. Institution of Oceanography that, in a sense, I learned more from attending the seminars. Right. And, you know, on exotic, weird things like the Garrison Corn event. <laughs> <laughs> but my question is, given your, your perspective, I'm curious to know what you think the uh, impacts will, will be. I mean, obviously, it's contingent on, I guess, on, on human action and, and how we manage our, our carbon uh, burning. But... What, what, what do you anticipate happening here? I mean, the planet does go through dramatic changes. I'm sure, yeah. you know, you're, you're a geologist. You're, you're, that's a passion of yours. I mean, I'm just curious to know what you, what you foresee. Well, we're already beyond the dramatic cycles and temperatures that experienced during the ice ages. So we're already mm. ex uh, exceeding the natural cycles mm. <clears throat> by a significant amount. <clears throat> So I'm afraid I'm, my depressed <laughs> message yeah. is I think it's almost hopeless that, the that we're not going to come to grips with it when we have governments like we, we have if the U.S. is not going to participate and, and uh, believe what their scientists right. have to say. Uh, it, it's bad news, and uh, we're, I'm not a close enough to the climatology understanding of it, mm -hmm. but as far as I can see, uh, I don't see our ability to, to control things. Mm. I see the broader prospects too of where we worry about carbon dioxide and greenhouse warming. Well, what's it doing to our ocean and acidification right. and killing of of the coral reefs and so on, and that we can't grow clams anymore because it dissolves them the in the the carbonate cycle yeah, and yeah, shells the, formation. Yeah, all these other impacts that nobody's really talking about. I mean, it's already having devastation. Uh, 
uh, on our planet. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a sobering subject, and, and in interviewing the hosts of different shows, our fisheries person, our economists, the folks who deal with different aspects of the shoreline, when we get to this subject and it comes up, and everyone is, that is professionally involved in the issues related to the coast are, are aware. And, and I think everyone is a little bit, I don't know, I don't want to say depressed about it. I, I would say n there's not a lot of optimism. Well, <laughs> let's put it that way. I think yeah. the implications are serious. And I share your view that I don't see the institutional capacity to handle this problem on, hmm. in the political, social, political, economic universe that we've created uh, so far. I mean, things can change, but yeah. we seem to lack the institutional, and this is almost a, a sociological question about organized human societies and how governments work, but because the problem is so diffuse and it requires such coordinated action, you just don't see that emerging, and it's, it's a little, it's, well, it's very concerning, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wonder if as a human community, do we have the capacity to tackle an issue of this complexity? And it's, it's kind of like, geez, I don't know. I don't think so. So far, no. As far as I can see, it's not very promising at all. No. Wow. Um, one of the things I want to ask about, because I think as an oceanographer as well as a geologist, uh, is I was in preparation for our discussion, I was reading about the climate change implications for currents and the Atlantic Ocean current system and the heat transfer system as one of the you talked about sort of the biological uh, physiochemical implications of warming and acidification, but can you talk about the, what, what the ocean currents and the heat transfer <coughs> system and how that, Excuse me. how does that, what does that mean? People don't think of that either. Can you help us understand that a little bit? Be honest, I don't think about it either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, the, the components I'm focused you, on are obviously sea level rise and the acceleration. Mm -hmm. um, the work I've, done, I've been involved in for many years on the Oregon coast, you know, that's a, a very interesting component is the sea level rise because it turns out due to our tectonic setting on the Pacific Rim of Fire, hmm. our coast is actually tectonically rising. Hmm. And some portions of our coast are actually rising faster than sea level is rising at present. But in not too many years, by the end of this century, the sea level rise will overtake it, and mm -hmm. areas that are not eroding at all now will experience erosion. Other areas of the coast already, you know, the sea level rise is greater than, uh, than the uh, land elevation rise in right. those areas. So uh, all of that, that's a major component. The other component that's Im important to us is the increase in storm intensities and right. that, that includes hurricanes but in our case in Oregon it's extra tropical storms it has the same effect you won't increase the water temperatures you're going to increase uh, mm -hmm. storm intensities and you're going to increase the heights of the waves they generate and mm -hmm. we have measurements hourly measurements of uh, wave heights uh, along the Oregon coast, right. uh, dating back to 1970, and um, a lot of the research that we've undertaken uh, 
with a co colleague of mine, uh, Jonathan Allen, uh, is looking at this increase along the Oregon coast mm. and very dramatic. And, really, quite. And in many respects, it, you know, it transforms into increases in the run-up le levels uh, right. that these higher waves do. And that actually turns out to be greater than the sea level rise. Hmm. Uh, that the, each year the, the water run-up is a little bit higher because the waves are higher and higher. And so you have to really think of the combination of the two of them, and that's the kind of models we have. That it, it looks at the run-up of the hourly, hourly by hourly run-up of the waves according to our measurements and how they're increasing over the, over the years and decades, and plus the rise in sea levels. You have to add these two things together right. to see what your real impacts are. It turns out, too, uh, I was on a committee uh, uh, looking at uh, global climate change effects, and nobody had done that kind of analysis on the East Coast. And uh, Jonathan Allen and I right. crunched the numbers for a few sites on the East Coast, and we found the same thing, that if you look at the waves generated during the hurricane season, uh, they're increasing uh, due to the increase in uh, intensities of the uh, categories of the hurricanes. That, mm. uh, and it's just natural. I mean, hurricanes, mm -hmm. their, their food, their energy sources, the increasing is uh, water temperatures, even more important than in extratropical storms. Interesting. Mm. So, so you know, we've already documented that, that storm intensities uh, and I mean, you're just your experience of the last few years of the yeah. uh, things I hadn't thought about is the in, increased uh, flooding of coastal regions. You know, now I right. appreciate it. You know, I don't have tropical storms in, on the Oregon coast, so right. I hadn't had the occasion to think about it. But that. you know, it, this is one thing I don't fully understand, but we hear a lot about, and, and, and this is an, a <laughs> Southeast Atlantic phenomenon, Miami uh, certainly is dealing with it, but the king tide, that phrase, the mm -hmm. king tides, which mm -hmm. are these, can you explain that a little bit? Would you, would you help me understand that? Can you, can you take a shot at, why is it that the, that the periodic tide tidal cycle is producing higher inundation or higher water levels. I mean, that's, isn't that, is that a sea level phenomenon? Well, I, I, mean, it, I just don't, it, I don't understand It's that. a little complicated. Okay, give, give me a shot. I, I think of them um, in terms of being perigean spring tides. We okay. have spring tides each month, you know, when the planets are aligned properly to right. produce higher forces of predicted astronomical tides. Okay. And the perigean is the highest of the whole year when the when the maximum occurs. Okay. So that's your. Uh, that's also I think largely referred to as the king tides. Okay. But it's purely uh, originally as as I think of the term being in in the uh, predicted astronomical tides. So it's not really incorporating the effects of climate change. Okay. Um, but it, in my case, on the Oregon coast, my highest king tides occur during El Ninos because that warms our local water temperatures and thermal expansion. Right. 
uh, to give that addition. So mm -hmm. we don't actually use that term, king tides. Okay. But, it, but this is a, so when we talk about thermal expansion, uh, the, the volume occupied by an amount of water is larger. And what is the percentage change? What is the thermal expansion factor? Oh, is it I don't 10, know I mean, is it 10%? Is it, I mean, is it, it, because it seems, I mean, this is from a layman's point of view, and I think a lot of our listeners are laymen. We, I read about thermal expansion, that water temperatures are going to increase, which means the water is going to occupy more space yeah. and all of that. I, I can give you, I can answer best from the experiences we have during El Nino's on the Oregon coast, okay. where, where there is the water temperature factor that causes the expansion. Uh, during the, uh, in the entire winter of a uh, El Nino event, like 82, 83, 97, 98, an extreme event, the water temperature increase, and, and there's also an effect of the currents, is such that the water levels are about 50 centimeters higher than normal, wow. higher than predicted. Wow. Wow. So you have the predicted astronomical tide, right. uh, the spring increment. tides, and then you got to add a, another 50 centimeters above that. Wow. Bearing in mind that sea level rise through the entire 20th century amounted to only 20 centimeters. Hmm. So, and, and so, you know, it's, it's double. It's more than double. Yeah, more than double. I I, I can't transfer it. Yeah, okay. I've not looked carefully enough. It's on meaningful. The East Coast. It's also meaningful in New Zealand, where I'm doing work now. Wait. I'd like to I'd like to take some time and talk about that work in New Zealand. What are you up to? <laughs> Having fun. <laughs> I mean, this this came out of the spur. Uh, spur. Well, it, I. Explain that I had just retired from Oregon State, and then I had this large grant, and mm -hmm. that kept me going at Oregon State as a researcher, not teacher. And uh, finally, that was running out, and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to be retired. I'll, I'll have to watch the episodes of The Young and the Restless on TV. What do you do in retirement? Mm -hmm. And uh, instead, uh, suddenly I got an email from a uh, official management official from Hawks Bay uh, explaining they needed an expert to advise them on issues to deal with climate change, but just broadly issues, the, the kinds of studies they should be doing and what had been done in the past. They had no feeling for what they actually knew about for sure. And would I be an advisor to them this is Hawks Bay, the east coast of the North Island. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, the, the message, the email ended, uh, would you be interested and in how much would you charge? <laughs> so my response is yes. Yes, that's <laughs> And it's kind of an emphatic yes. <laughs> and then uh, amount I charge and it. I knew this would be a long-term project, so it wasn't even my normal consulting fee. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't like a law case or anything like that. Right. Where I figure, I figure I shouldn't say this. I'm more important than a lawyer. I, I'm a more <laughs> rare commodity than their lawyers are. Maybe yeah. I shouldn't say that. That's why they call it expert testimony, it, it, and it's exactly. why the rates are high. There's the, there, well, I was so naive, uh, me and my lawyer that I was working with the first time, he sort of said, you're not 
charging enough. <laughs> right. Yeah, I generally, I, I, I quickly learned that as I was seeing what the other side was charging. This is absurd. I mean, this, this is obscene. <laughs> <laughs> I had a similar experience in the financing case I was telling you about. The, the economist on the other side of the case was charging $600 an hour. Yeah, I, mean, I was like, gee whiz, really? That's, yeah, that's I, I ridiculous. Never, even when I knew what they were charging, I couldn't and honestly his opinion was do it. <laughs> I couldn't honestly and all do right. conscious charge that amount. I right. mean, I'm not that valuable. <laughs> I, I've lost traffic. What were we talking well, about? Uh, we were talking we were about New Zealand. Zealand. Yeah, we oh, New, New Zealand. Zealand. But it's a, it's a great, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it was just you know, a godsend to me that, you know, and, and it's also on the ring of fire. So right. I knew that a lot of the things would be the same thing and I would be able to transfer what we had been learning in the Pacific Northwest to there. And right. indeed that has been true, but there were interesting differences that, uh, and I spoke about that at the conference yesterday, just yeah. uh, in a talk that uh, the beaches, uh, all my work were on sand beaches. Well, these are mixed sand and gravel, much coarser. The dynamics are much different. So I had would have to account for things like that. And most important, they had an earthquake in 1931, not a subduction earthquake, a lot of the kind of things that mm -hmm. are totally destructive, mm -hmm. but it destroyed Napier, the, the whole city, both the the earthquake itself and the fire afterwards, but it changed the elevations. Parts mm. of the coast that I'll be working, that I was working on, were elevated by two meters, six wow. feet. If you can imagine, you're suddenly, mm -hmm. the, the coast, your shoreline, you couldn't develop it because it was overwashed on a daily basis and suddenly it was two meters, six feet higher. Well, wow. now it's covered with big homes and so on like that. that they're now worrying about with sea level rise, will they now have erosion problems? So that was what I was looking at too. Very but and it, it, to contrast, as you went along the coast, the uplift got smaller and smaller till at the south, and it actually dropped down by a meter. Huh. Well, of course, you know, the, all those houses yeah. immediately. Well, you know suffer. what they say in real estate: location, 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 location. location. <laughs> yeah, and this is really a critical example of it. I was it. trying to be on the uplift, and yeah. I couldn't tell. But today, that's an expert. You could get paid a lot of money. Research. You could tell the research, the real estate people, where the uplift is going to be. They they give you some money for that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you need a uh, you need an investor who's really taken a good long view, which well, uh, do, it, unfortunately doesn't always happen on the beach. I keep vaguely reminding them that all the previous earthquakes along their stretch of size were down. The whole coast went down. So if they mm. have another big one, well, not not even a subduction earthquake, but a, an earthquake within the upper plate itself, the odds are they're going to go down again. Oh, really? But I don't know what the predictions right. are on that. I can't of make the predictions, not. and even the seismologists can't right. make yeah. the predictions. Absolutely. Let me ask you this, from a policy standpoint, working down in New Zealand, and you've been down there for years off and on, I assume. Yeah, yeah. basically 15 years. And the attitude about the issue is it different there than it is in America? And I guess you're working, they've asked you as an expert, can you help us understand what we're facing here, that kind of thing as a government curiosity, mm -hmm. a policy question really. Um, how does it compare? Can you draw any, uh, of course you live in one of the more progressive states in the nation. So. Well, my, my comparisons are with 
with uh, Oregon. And the, it turns out that the uh, comparisons are appropriate because, mm -hmm. and I only just recently discovered that going on Google, I discovered that the area of New Zealand is almost exactly the same as the area hmm. of uh, Oregon. Interesting. I, I think of it as a New Zealand as a big country and so on, and mm -hmm. I look on maps and it's big because of Mercator projections, right. like Greenland, you know, is not really that big. It's it's the size of my state, and so when I'm dealing with Hawke's Bay, is like a county, hmm. mm. and wow. I, I so you know, wow. in the case of Oregon, you know, we do all of these studies and recommend setback distances. When it goes to the local communities, yeah. each county will have different reactions. Some of it very forward-looking, others not so forward-looking. So you see this spectrum. It, I lose control of it at of that course. time. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have colleague, a colleague, long-term colleague, Jim Good, who really focused, so he was professor of oceanography too, but he was, his expertise was management. Mm. And so he was, we were all, always team players when we, we, uh, we were both Sea Grant, and the expectation is that we would go to the communities that we're serving, not, not, not always survive, uh, giving Rotary Club talks and yeah. so on like that yeah. and so on. I actually wrote a second book uh, that I, I always jokingly said that where I just wrote down my Rotary Clubs, and it, it, it's true that you, you're going to that. It, it, it's much more formalized uh, in New Zealand. You know, wh when I gave a talk, it was for that whole community, and it, it included the mayors of hmm. of Napier and uh, and uh, other communities in that district. And they had the foresight. You know, th this area that had rose up by two meters. They didn't immediately like the Americans would do, build houses right up to the edge and sell property right up the edge. No, they had reserves, mm. wide setbacks amounted. And so uh, these areas that I'm dealing with, you know, even uh, in the results of my research, those areas that had been uplift by that amount, you know, the, they still won't be overtopped during the rise of sea mm. level by the end of this century. The erosion will be about 20 meters, but they still will have some of the reserve left. That's thinking that ahead. Th they thought way ahead. I yeah, mean, it's great. Um, it's almost amazing. I mean, it's almost. I can't even imagine it. It's, well, I, <laughs> well, yeah. It's so they, hard to do in America, and I think it's hard to do. I mean, as well, people, it's hard to do that. You're the, It's the the whole country there. It's so rational. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost unbelievable. In Napier, they celebrate each anniversary of this earthquake. They have a big celebration, mm -hmm. and everybody dresses up in 1920s outfits. So, and the city was re completely rebuilt Art Deco and Art Nouveau. It's oh, just really? gorgeous. Really? So let me see. This has got to be. Is this the only festival in the world that celebrates a geologic event? <laughs> It did. It was positive. Is, Na yeah. Napier itself had a history of flooding all the time. Well, they went up by a meter and a half. I'd have a party. And the, their destroyed <laughs> city uh, was bulldozed out into the, the reserve area, and they have a wall, too. It's the only area that has a, a wall. Mm -hmm. But So they're 
they're well protected. So it is a celebration. Yeah. They've, they, they, they now have a beautiful city and so on. It's, but it's uh, where I was going with this is my wife and I, uh, she went on occasion. I, I was going like two or three times every year uh, commuting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but she went commute. on this occasion because we knew the, the, the festival. And we were standing there, one of the was with old cars from the 20s and so on, and we were waiting towards the front of that. And we noticed the, the front car was sort of off by itself there, and people were going up and walking and talking to somebody there. So I, out of curiosity, I walked up over there. I only know her by her first name, Helen. It was the prime minister. I walked up <laughs> and had a chat. There was no no security whatsoever. And, wow. uh, you know, Helen, uh, and she took quite a bit of time of interest in what I was doing and so on that uh, I don't <laughs> know many prime ministers or yeah. presidents would take. And uh, right. uh, I mean, the current prime minister, again, is a woman, and she just had a baby. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. She just had a baby. It was quite an yeah. event, too. But yeah. They have their conservative side, they have their liberal side, but they all went to the same school. And yeah. Uh, yeah. you don't see this extreme. They can work together. And the, even the electric gives them turns. You know, every eight years or thereabouts, you know, okay, mm -hmm. it's the other side that has, has their turn, but it never goes wildly one way or right. versus another. The oscillation another. is no, not yeah. as extreme as yeah, here. Yeah, hardly at all. And they're always cooperating, huh. as far you as know, I could see. It's part of that island identity, well, I think. One of the themes that I think you've hit on in different elements is this notion of curiosity and having a willingness to try to understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and it, there's a certain bravery there because there's implications in understanding. When you, when you say, gee whiz, I'm kind of curious how this is working, what's happening here? It does suggest that perhaps you should take some action. And it, it kind of goes back to your talk yesterday when you were uh, describing your early experiences on, on Lake Michigan and on the beach. Just the curiosity of the sand, I, I really related to that notion of the sand through your hands and that early experience mm -hmm. of this is really an interesting material, sort of a willingness to sort of go into these, I think the Mars work you've done is sort of like, gee, I'm gonna end up working on a Mars issue. And when you see political people or policy people maintain that sense of curiosity, I think it all works better. I think mm -hmm. curiosity is, a, well, it's certainly a very good thing to have as a scientist. That's sort of the, the currency of the trade, really. Yeah, I, th I think scientists are held in very high repute there. I don't want to paint a completely positive uh, yeah. image. Uh, the, uh, I was also involved in looking at uh, the developments of another area of New Zealand, another one of these county size where they were having a large amount of conflict between the, the management and the, um, and the general public. Hmm. And uh, so I was called in with several other people, an engineer from New Zealand, a couple from Australia, and a committee to have a look at it and try to resolve this issue between the two. And to a certain degree, it was an overreaction on the management side. Hmm. 
that yes, we have this, these predictions and so on, but th they were implementing to the extent of the most extreme condition mm -hmm. that you can't even modernize your kitchen if you want to. Yeah. Hmm. You know, that they had completely overreacted. <clears throat> the expert who, uh, the geologist who had done the report, um, how can I say this, mm -hmm. wasn't quite up to standards. Uh, and he, he did. alarmist, it, maybe? It was, it, no, it wasn't alarmist so much as he just was dependent. Uh, dependent on re, uh, surveys of the beach over the years. He didn't even look at the wave conditions and the fact that they I might see. increase. He did sea level, but you know, there were shortcomings as to his. So, okay. you know, the ex expertise, I, I think Hawks Bay, I'm okay. okay. The uh, expertise, uh, um, like in Hawks Bay, they had research and what I was reviewing at that, that initial stage just to understand everything went all the way back to the 1800s when they built the harbor and so on. But they were hiring first-rate people mm. to do a number of studies and that's what I was advising them on, reviewing these and you know they had not just the one uh, investigator, they, they did uh, quality on it, all aspects of it and That's people great. I really, you know, expertise that the, the people I knew uh, come to know and appreciate myself and I could uh, advise them and ultimately that was the first phase of my work there. The second phase was when they wanted me to basically do the same kind of analyses that had been, uh, we had been undertaken in the uh, Pacific Northwest. The wave uh, run up, the wave, wave run up, all of these analyses and so on to hmm. look at these different areas that had uplifted versus subsided and so on to project into the future. So yeah, the, the quality of what they were doing was I extremely good. This other community, county, so to speak, you know, didn't quite come up to the standards. So. Uh, you know, the the we have great scientists in America. The National Climate Assessment Report that was produced earlier this year is a major update to the assessment that, that we have done as, as a nation, in addition to the International Climate Change Panel, which has its own report. I think we have information. The issue is whether we listen or how we respond to it. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like there is an interest or at least a, a greater sense of receptivity to, to that kind of information in New Zealand than maybe there is in America today. Certainly so, um, but on the other hand, in, in Oregon, yeah. the reception varies from county to county within, yeah. our, within our state. Some very adapted and so on, and sometimes right. I get frustrated. Yeah. And I, my, my retort on that, and this is very bad, that someday we'll have a subduction earthquake and we'll have to start over again and next time they'll listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, this is what I call the Armageddon argument, which yeah. is that there is going to be a pain, there's a judgment someday day. there mm -hmm. is a there's judgment a, there's a day. And yeah. it, the environmental community is a judgment day philosophy. It's, it's just that the arbiter is not 
the Lord above, but it is the natural systems will teach you what you need to know if, yeah. you, if you don't listen. Yeah, yeah. You know, exactly, a, exactly. Th this, this, I was curious about this uh, point you made about the science surviving in the political environment long enough to, to get to, to influence the outcome. Mm -hmm. And it's something Steve Underwood and I were talking about yesterday in preparation for our talk. Steve Underwood is a, is a coastal planner in, in New Orleans, but we worked together in Cameron County, the southernmost county of Texas on a shoreline management plan that was, was dealing with setbacks in relation to shoreline change. We were working with Applied Coastal Research and Engineering, great scientists guys. We had, they did all this data analysis on shoreline projection, kind of standard stuff. But the erosion rates there are in the neighborhood of 10 feet per year. It's meaningful. Hmm. There are plotted lots out in the ocean that were done in the 70s. So when they platted subdivisions, they didn't build them yet. When we get the lot lines in a GIS arc file, we, we can plot it, and it's in the water. So we, we know it's happening, right? But we couldn't, our goal as consultants to that county was to try to get the science to survive as deep into the policy discussion as we could. That's how we looked at the job. Ultimately, uh, the setback we recommended was watered down quite a bit, but we continue to, I mean, this is the capacity of the society to absorb what the scientific world helps us understand about the coastal environment. And I don't know, it's, if you could get 50% of the policy influenced by the scientific understanding, I think it's pretty good in America. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do, because people don't, the financial implications of what's being said is, is, can be intolerable. Um, again, I've sort of stressed for the case of Oregon, you know, that it varies a lot from county to county, but yeah. there's also a state supervision above that. Right. And we, our coastal zone management came in in the 1967, just before I arrived One there. One of the first, yeah. That, you know, and we, of course, ha have established a long history <coughs> of ownership uh, by the state of the uh, of the sand beach through a curious thing is that his a uh, hundred years ago the best way of going along the north south along the coast was on the beach we didn't mm -hmm. have a road yet right so it was actually a designated highway and even when I arrived there in 1970, it was under the jurisdiction of the highway department. Is that right? right. But uh, in 1967, they defined that zone as to what is the active beach and so on. And so there's, there is a line. We're, we're under the curious condition that the state, the, the, the whole coastline is tectonically rising. So we don't have this problem, particularly of long-term ero net erosion rates. Hmm. What we have is episodic erosion that cuts back the dunes by tens of meters and threatens homes. Right. And then it, it naturally builds out again back to the former state. So there's not a long-term component. So it's just keeping them out of that zone of right. uh, worst uh, conditions with rip uh, a, a particular lot having a rip current in front of it which varies right. from year to year, as well as the intensities the of the storms. Spot. The hot spot. Yeah. Uh, El Nino's in particular, we have a series of littoral cells 
controlled by where the headlands are. Yeah. And during El Nino's, the sand moves from the south into the littoral cell. So you're down to bare mm -hmm. rock then, and it moves up to the north end of that, uh, of the littoral cell. Thank, My favorite. Thank God when I, <laughs> when I bought a cottage, because I worked so much on the Oregon coast, I didn't know that when I, I was at the north end. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I didn't embarrass myself. My, my <laughs> house falling right. in. Now, you should know this. So. I, I, yeah. I don't have a certain <laughs> sometimes you foresight. Just get lucky. That, yeah, my, sometimes you just get lucky. My favorite headland on the Oregon coast is Neoconnie Mountain. Is oh, that yeah. what it's called? I, yeah. I love yeah, that is. hike out to the... Oh, way up high. Yeah, oh, it's spectacular. It has religious significance, it's, the uh, Indians and everything. Is that right? Yeah. What county? I forget where that is. It's down to, south, to, right? Douglas? No. I thought it was in the north. Oh, it's in the north? Yeah, yeah it's in the north. Is it? Yeah, okay. Kind of, yeah, it's high, and you can get up way up there and look down on Beautiful. a major portion. And one of my favorite areas, there's a, just just as you're going north of there, is uh, one of my favorite areas uh, beach and campground, beautiful campground. You actually have to. You, you, you can't drive your RV in there. You, I know. It's it. What's all the name of it? It's not. It's not. I'm trying to it's think. It's not Acadia. It's not. It's. It's. No. It starts with an A, doesn't it? I, I know what you're, you have to. You park. You get a little trailer thing, a little pole, and you and you have to like walk. A wagon. Yeah, you get a wagon and you walk down. It's yeah. It's yeah. small and, and it, yeah, stunningly small, beautiful. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah, beautiful. I love little that park. park. Yeah. I can't remember the name. I, of it. I'm sorry. To, I, I, <laughs> Everybody's going to hear this. This is one of my favorite beaches, and I never give away information like that. Well, we couldn't. Maybe but, that's what we, we didn't hey, say the name. At least it's hard to get to. You're catching me in my 78th, uh, and I can't remember names. And now all the names I know are in, in New Zealand. I've forgotten all the geography of, of Oregon. I'm, I'm now returning and Re making recontacts with faculty uh, that uh, former students even in oceanography and talking to the students and uh, trying to restore mm. my credentials at my right. own university. You know, I want to talk, let's talk about students in the next generation. Well, and I want to talk about that, but I also want would, to talk about go ahead. The, the past generation a little bit and Orville Magoon and, and some of these, uh, some, of, some of the people you in your life. That, yeah. Um, I was two years ago at the ASBPA conference in uh, New Jersey uh, that I first learned about Orville Magoon uh, on the occasion, I guess, of his, he had passed away re around mm -hmm. that time and there was a conference there. I, I knew nothing about him, but it was so cool to, to learn about him and his contributions. And, you know, you've, you've had the pleasure of working with many of these giants in the field. I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about these people. And well, yeah, I, I felt compelled to even mention them. It was like they all died at once while I was in New Zealand, you mm -hmm. know. Yeah. All of these people, that, and Orville was a, one of my favorite. I, I would have come to your conferences just because I knew Orville was going to be there. Yeah. But he was so full of energy and neat idea. He was an engineer, but he's, his big thing was sand rights and so yeah. on. I mean, he just mm -hmm. was filled with energy uh, that would transmit to you but I don't know I felt this compulsion just to, to list all of them even the younger Nick Krauss and mm -hmm. Abby Salinger and so on that meant Not so team. much to me that and uh, 
I nearly, my big fear I was, would start to cry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an emotional type, so yeah. I had to hang in there. But, uh, you know, I debated about doing that. I knew I didn't have much time, but I just felt compelled to I'm acknowledge glad you did it. that all of these people meant so much to me that they accepted me. I was a little bit younger mm -hmm. and somehow saw something in me that <laughs> made me worthy to, <laughs> to talk to me. <laughs> yeah. And, and Bob Dean, uh, he and I, we usually disagree, but it was a delight. We right, respected each other. He, yeah. he was much more of an engineering empirical approach where I'm much more a process-based uh, mm. Yeah, individual geolo geological uh, as well, uh, oceanographic as well as geologic. You know, w with the work that these folks have done over the decades and you've contributed to, is the understanding of these processes in the American shoreline and dynamics, and I'm thinking sort of in the physics, physical sense, are, do we understand it? Are we? Has it been figured out? Is there more to know? Well, there's always more to know. You know yes, that. Yes, of course. <laughs> We're not going to write ourselves yes, off. No. Well, but no, the, I think the measure is, I did my 1976 book very early, and it was so easy because there was so little literature. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was cited in there was from World War II. Yeah, the Navy you know, and I still feel compelled to reference those articles that are historic. Okay, you know, the tendency of a modern-day book is only to, a textbook is to only cover the literature that's from the last 10 years. Well, yeah. now, you, if you're really into this subject, you've got to know about these yeah. cl classic articles, these classic people. Indeed. These, uh, the, that formed the foundation of it. So... Writing the 98 one was far harder. You know, mm. I had to, there was so much literature and I had to make choices. You know, I can't recite it all. I got to make specific. Right. And there I, I have an, a personal advantage, you know. The tendency of researchers is to think their, is their research results is the cat's meow. I think that's the right, yeah. <laughs> that. And they tend to over, when you look at their list of references, uh, they're widely cited in the book they just wrote. <laughs> their own stuff. <laughs> I, I'm not that way. I, mm -hmm. I just love to read what other people are doing. Uh, why I was able to uh, do that book so soon after my uh, PhD is I had a postdoc and uh, almost no commitments uh, to actually produce anything, I had actually completed my re I had my completed my postdoc research before I went on my postdoc was the truth of the matter. So I spent the better part of a year just reading Great. and taking notes and what so on. So you know, it was simple to come out with a seventy-six. But I mean, the, the next one now, if I can live to a hundred to, to complete it, the third edition. Uh, is going to be even more staggering. I, you know, the big thing changed even from 98 is the inclusion of the climate, mm -hmm. the right. climate change and all of its effects. So, Can you, this is something I have to ask because it comes up a lot in, in discussions that I have in the local government level. Uh, and I, I really just want to take advantage of your knowledge is 
What do you make of the model, the emerging models on shoreline processes? And are you, what's your comment on, you know, the old days we didn't have all the computing power to, right. and the horsepower to analyze mm -hmm. these things. And it was done in a little different way. I think a little bit more empirically maybe. But when you look at sort of the emerging uh, use of a very sophisticated, very high power models. What's your sense of that as a scientist in terms of it's obviously a great tool, but do you have a sense of it? The, uh, we make a lot of decisions based on these things. Does, does mind boggling come into the Well, I have all my, a lot of my contacts here are Europeans and England has their set of models. The Americans have their set of models. The Germans, uh, I mean, every really? country virtually has their, uh, well, the Dutch, of course, they've yeah. always had their, they, uh, they swear by theirs, everybody yeah. else. It, it's, it's sort of like these, these hurricane models, hurricane yeah. predictions. Okay, you've got 20, let's average the results. Well, right. so uh, I'm not, you know, I'm a geologist. I'm a simple yeah. geologist. I can't evaluate them uh, really. Uh, I know enough mathematics to understand what they're doing, but I yeah. can't choose one over the other. I can, really? I can appreciate them. Sometimes I'm not too keen because they're very highly uh, empirical. Uh, I, uh, I can criticize my engineering people sometimes mm -hmm. that... Uh, the, the, the profiles they're choosing as an assumption and things that the assumptions they're making don't really correspond to what I see. Mm. Uh, so I have my doubts about certain about, uh, doubts about, hmm. about the outcome. I, I can see the sophistication and the requirement of the use that was true of my work in uh, New Zealand. You know, I, I've looked at the local erosions and so on and made predictions, but the recognition is that, okay, when the occurrence of erosion uh, begins uh, in a major, it's going to be supplying lots of sediment to the beach, and it's going right. to be redistributed in patterns that are much different than they are hmm. today. And the only way to deal with those is to do these numerical models. Okay. Do the numerical models and just be a little bit suspicious of the results. Okay. That, uh, but that's... Uh, that, that's so you don't have a face. So if we did the top three, we've got you got, so no, we got the New no Zealand, way. England, mm -hmm. we got the U.S., we got the Corps of Engineers models, and there everybody's in evolving. Well, the Dutch, the uh, Dutch, Dutch uh, have long had, had no their favorites. Models. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, okay. I I wouldn't even begin to think about me doing the the modeling or think of, about choosing. A, I would pass that on. I know my limits. We'd give that and to Bob I, I've already. Uh, in New Zealand, you know, I've pointed out to them, and that's part of my advice. You know, I've carried this as far as I can go. You, and they know hmm. who the modeler is, mm -hmm. a, a very expert guy uh, who's done modeling for them. Uh, for the, one of his models of longshore uh, transport and redistribution of erosion is because it, it, in the until quite recently, uh, there was a uh, sediment mining operation on one of their beaches, taking a significant amount of the sediment out. Well, um, he, he did uh, models of the impacts of this, and 
it's interesting you think of okay there's a longshore transport of sediment and if you're taking uh, sediment out of the system at this one point it'll, the intuit intuition is that it affects only the downdrift side right well you know it doesn't uh, mm -hmm. i mean it does but right. it also influences the up yeah. and induces erosion in the updrift side yeah. you know and his yeah. models so you know it's kind of counterintuitive until you to think about it yeah, like a low uh, pressure so it's an yeah. atmospheric it's a, it's, it's one increases system. the flow into the hole well right. yeah right? well or I, I point to the opposite if there were a river there and the forming a delta yeah. you know the the delta is <laughs> affecting the updrift side too it's yeah. not just accumulating sediment to the downdrift side mm. it's building in the updrift side mm. so mm -hmm. yeah you have these and uh uh, and so you know they 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 know who their expert is who needs to be doing th this model uh, mm -hmm. the same same well, individual an engineer. Now, before we leave, this is a subject, Tyler, that I think is you. Don't, I don't know if you know this about uh, about Paul is a, th a thousand films, right? A thousand films. Oh, we got to talk about oh. film. We got to talk about movies. Oh, we yeah, have to yeah. talk about what 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 <laughs> does one do in retirement? <laughs> As everybody who talks to me knows or knows of me that I'm obsessive, uh, you know, I, I get something I'm interested in and I go full blast on it. And that was sort of what my talk was about yesterday yeah. that, uh, you know, I have these eureka moments and then off I'm going, you know, and absolutely pursue it. Uh, in, in this case, <laughs> what you're referring to, it's just purely okay. Six years ago, I uh, I made a New Year's resolution. We had at our coastal cottage a bunch of DVDs, uh, old videos, and so on. I was going to watch these. I was never much of a movie watcher. Maybe one or two movies a year. Mm -hmm. So I watched these, and I actually enjoyed them. Yeah. I mean, they were pretty crappy movies because most of them were chosen by my wife, but uh, <laughs> but I, I still enjoyed edit them. That out. So uh, I uh, I uh, joined Netflix, of course, uh -huh. and it turned out our library in Corvallis is a wonderful library and has a big collection, and they categorize them by country, oh, and cool. so I can go in and say, okay, I want to see something from India and so on, but the it got totally out of hand, and I was just commenting in February I passed 1,000 wow. movies I had watched, and I'm, obs I'm, I'm obsessive to the nth degree in that each movie I watch, I Google, almost always Wikipedia, mm -hmm. of all the movie stars, and if it's historic, I really get into it because I'm interested in history, so yeah. I, it takes me out of, actually sometimes longer to cover that than actually watching the movie but my I love silent films I, I uh, jokingly say sometimes I'm tempted to turn down the sound on other movies absolutely uh, but uh, my favorite movie is the 1927 Danish French movie the, the Passion of Joan of Arc it's uh. just a gem and I have confidence in that because in my assessment, I just love that film, and uh, it's they. It has a pedigree that it, it had been edited very uh, yeah. 
extensively, the church didn't like it. Oh, really? Because uh, it's about her trial. Right. Uh, and uh, all, all the dialogue in the movie is from the written records of her trial. Wow. But it was considered to be a lost film until just in the mid-1980s, a copy was found. And, and get this. Wow. It was found in the closet in an insane asylum in Norway. A wow. complete, pristine copy. So just with that pedigree, you've got to go yeah. see that movie. Yeah. And the music is great, too. It's uh, done by the Anonymous Four, you know, because they don't have the music that originally went with it. So right. And the composition goes with it. Wow. It's, it's just... But, yeah, I, for the first four years, I, I watched nothing but foreign films. French, oh, God, I've like only had taken French. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of reading captions, but... But no, uh, it was always foreign films, uh, and only this past year have I finally. <laughs> I mean, there, there were classic American films I would watch, but uh, uh, best uh, best director, favorite director. Do you have a favorite director? Uh, that's no, a, that's a tough question. Not, not, uh, favorite directors. Director. Uh, yeah, and uh, a lot of my watching is I will watch. Uh, all the films I've, I've watched every movie I could could find of Bergman, and if I'm, do them in a series. This yeah, is, yeah, yeah. That, or, or I'll do a, an actress or an actor yeah. uh, that I'll focus. That it's not completely. But I, I mentioned that uh, uh, our library has them categorized by uh, country, and yeah. my, my just I've tried to do every conceivable country that I can. Uh, find a film for. I'm a I'm an Italian film fan. Well, they make great films. I'm strangely not. You're not. <laughs> no, I don't. I never. They're have. sentimental. There's a sentimentality to it that. Well, I like. normally I you would think yeah I mean would go I would go that route but no no, no. I, I've not I, I I've covered all the classics certainly yeah. but uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah well I I love I love uh, the English uh, film tradition in England. Uh, I think the French make fantastic films. Obviously, the Germans have a have an amazing history with film. Uh, I think it's cool that you got into Indian uh, stuff. Yeah. We were, oh, yeah. Yeah. we we're, Peter and I have talked about how we we dig the modern you know the modern Bollywood industry yeah, is yeah. really. I've, I've done blossomed. a couple of those. Just yeah, really fun. Yeah, yeah, fun and entertaining, and yeah. they're beautiful. Curious, yeah, with the music and everything yeah. like that. Yeah. But, yeah. But uh, yeah, the the ones that are much deeper, you know, it yeah. goes back to the separation period. Oh yeah. And, uh, so yeah, uh, yeah. It, uh, That's cool, Paul. It's better than watching the Young and the Restless on television. <laughs> I, find I, very, I very little to find uh, to watch on television, so it occupies me. I think we need to have you on every once in a while to do a film show, film review show. <laughs> what would, how would you like to be the film reviewer for the American <laughs> True Line podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Favorites, Paul's favorite. We'll yeah. have, we'll just, have a, a just a little show. segment. Exactly. A little well, segment. I, we'll do. I, I would because I feel very frustrated. This is something I don't, don't share with my wife. She's a reader. And mm-hmm. Just she doesn't understand me <laughs> how long have you guys been married forever <laughs> she's got to be closer now than at the beginning you think 
an understanding uh, of it. Uh, what we really shared is travel. We just traveled everywhere. I, I should recount how many countries, almost every country in Europe, uh, a lot of it work-related, spent a lot of time in India mm. uh, for the United Nations, in Egypt, wow. uh, China. Wow. So uh, in, in Japan, I did a... Um, a speaking tour there under Kojima Foundation. I mean, mm. they, they give that to engineers. What, what am they doing? Why I'm Smart not an guy. engineer? Well, what I, so much I did is close to engineering, the practicality of it, that I, I have better contacts with engineers than with oceanographers. But uh, yeah, in Japan, I, I was very tempted on if I had had lots of time uh, for my talk yesterday, which was sort of, you know, I followed um, my route of, right. uh, of uh, my career and so on, uh, that uh, in the end I would sing I did it my way. <laughs> because uh, my, my experience in Japan, they would take me to a bar and, you, you know, when you meet professors there, you change cards and so on. And mm -hmm. There's you a protocol. Bow, there's a protocol. So I yeah. came back with a a uh, large list, uh, a large pile of cards from our exchange, and my wife is going through them, and she says, who is this? Well, it turned out to be a, a Filipino bar girl I had done karaoke <laughs> with. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. She'd write a paper but, about that. <laughs> but but just, just the opportunities I've had, I just, you know, like, God, I just, I'm this, I have an inferior complex of my of my origin in Grand Rapids and right. so on and uh, what an just everything it, it just fell into place and uh, it seems it you know it's been an adventure in reading you know in, in sort of preparing for this I was like boy this guy's had a great life I mean just yeah. the travel the subject matter yeah, the expanse the, the yeah. mental you know the, the curiosity all of these wonderful yeah. what a great career what a what a joy to talk to you um, I really, I'm serious. We need a film review about once out of every, every couple of months. We'll have you on to introduce introduce people to a new interesting film that you have watched, and you can do oh, us the rundown. Oh, I, 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 we, I, we, we, I was thinking my first six months would all be silent films. That's <laughs> but, totally fine. That's okay. Nothing the, wrong. The with revival that. of silent films. We have an old uh, uh, in Corvallis. We have. Uh, a local theater that you know they show some of these old ones too that uh, and Neat. they show the good american ones when when i was saying bad things about american it's the the brain dead garbage right uh, but you know there's a lot of good uh, that, that it's to the extent that uh, you know uh, i'm now able to watch I, i'm all, always one year late because of being dependent on Netflix, but you know, mm -hmm. I'll have a dozen films from uh, 2017 that I've I watched. You that know that, mm -hmm. uh, that I can do that now. That is great. I wanted to thank our sponsor, Dune Doctors, uh, out of uh, Pensacola, Florida. Dune Doctors is one of the premier. Dune and Shoreline Restoration firms that I know of. They've been around for 17 years. They're here at the conference. It's great to see them. Uh, but Frederic Barasset, the owner of that company, does a fantastic job, super serious. So if you're a 
shoreline property owner, manage large properties, or are working with local governments and are interested in natural dune restoration with native dune plants, one of the best methodologies, I think, for shoreline response. Uh, give our friends at Dune Doctors a call, uh, www.dunedoctors.com. Awesome. Well, How Paul, fun. what a joyful what Paul. A it's, it's really been our honor to have you on the American Shoreline podcast. Uh, you are uh, you have enriched this community of people, uh, the coastal community. Um, thank you very much for being on the show, and, and uh, we look forward to to staying in touch and hopefully uh, doing more. Hope, maybe it's yeah. film. Maybe we talk some beach stuff, but. Yeah. Either way, well, well, maybe a little it, business, but a little. I'd love to do the film. It's yeah. been my pleasure. I've enjoyed talking to you. A good Thank conversation. You. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Enjoy the rest of the day. I know you're going on the field trip. I'm going on the field trip. Yeah, Great. I'm looking forward to that. Great. Thanks, Paul. Thank you so much. All right. Bye, everybody.